Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Now in the fourth decade of his career, former Husker Du and Sugar guitarist Bob Mould is still going strong. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Bob Mould joins us for a conversation and a live performance. Plus, we'll review the new collaboration between Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers. And I'll drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, we are going to review the new album from an unlikely trio of very talented singer-songwriters, Nico Case, Katie Lang, Laura Veers. You know, three is a mystical number, right? You have the pyramid. You have the holy (laughs) trinity. Good things come in threes. I wouldn't have expected these three artists to work together, but three is going to be a theme on this show. Looking forward to that, Jim. That's coming up later in the show. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's our guest this week, Bob Mould, with Hands Are Tied from his latest album, Patch the Sky. Bob first came out in the 80s uh, hardcore punk scene as part of that pioneering trio, Husker Du, and that helped pave the way for the alternative rock explosion of the 90s. Nobody was calling it alternative rock in the 80s. It became that a decade later. Then, Bob Mould uh, reinvented himself yet again for that decade, had a great deal of success with another three-piece band, Sugar. That number three is about to become a key theme throughout this show, Greg. Bob Mould's released 12 albums as his own as a solo artist, and for several years he's been recording and touring with the third great power trio of his career, joined by bassist Jason Narducci and drummer John Worster, best known for his work with Superchunk and the Mountain Goats, as well as that comedy team, Sharpling and Worster. Together, this trio's recorded, you guessed it, three albums. Silver Age in 2012, Beauty and Ruin in 2014, and now Patch the Sky, and Mold calls these three albums a triptych. Three bands, three musicians, three albums. When Bob Mold, Jason Narducci, and John Worster joined us in the studio, I asked Bob about all of these mystical connections to that number three. I actually didn't notice that. Somebody mentioned it to me and then was like, oh, let's fold that into the press release because <laughs> I'm sort of oblivious to those kinds of things. A actually, sharp I'm young sort of publicist. Like, I'm sort of like doing my thing and I never I never count. So <laughs> one, two, four, and then we start. So that three <laughs> thing is so foreign. But no, you know, it's part three of this installment, whatever, you know, whatever we're doing. You know, and it's funny because, you know, I think with Silver Age, Beauty and Rune, and now this record, Patch the Sky, very similar circumstances as far as personnel and engineer, recording, label, all that, you know, all that's very firm and, and constant. But to me, three completely different environments that the, the records were written in, three mm. different sets of circumstances. So, 
know, I guess for me up close, they're all, they're real different, but you know, fr- from afar or other people watching. Yeah. I guess it's, they all fit together well. Well, and Jim was alluding to this whole idea of three, you know, the power trio format. Husker Du reinvented that for a lot of people. People thought power trios meant cream. Mm-hmm. And mm. Husker Du represented another version <laughs> of what that could be. Yes. And it was mind-blowing for, uh, uh, you know, a couple of generations of, of listeners, including us. And it seemed like you, you said, okay, this three-piece band thing, that's when I'm at my best. Yeah, it's really uncluttered. It's really direct. It's very easy for us because, you know, if the three of us know the songs, it gives us a lot of freedom to do things inside of the song that are not confusing. I mean, you know, we can improvise off of any song at any point, and we usually do during a show. We sort of almost try to trip each other up a little <laughs> bit, and, it's, and that's part of the fun of it. And I think the more musicians you have on stage, the more confusing that could be. So it's more, you know, maybe a little jazzier in a way, you know, being able to improvise, you know, and react. And that's the fun part of a three-piece. I mean, you know, whether it was, you know, Hendrix or Blue Cheer or people, you know, any of that kind of really heavy stuff where people could take long solos and, and, and do stuff. That's something we haven't done a lot of. Well, once, I'm going to take a, a solo very soon. You're going to take a bit, <laughs> 10-minute solo coming up right now. Forrester's <laughs> big on the jam thing, right, man? You'd oh, like yeah, the, yeah. Like and the then jam. Uh, my solo... I, I hack in the middle of it, a hacky sack. Yeah. So yeah, you've got your version of Toad. Exactly. Yeah. I got you, Bob. How about a song before we go on with the conversation? Cool. Let's uh, let's try voices. Yeah. 
Voices in my head, Bob Mould with uh, John Worcester and Jason Narducci. Man, what a treat. It's nice. <laughs> I went well. You've said that you needed solitude and to get your head together and uh, recover from some trials in your life. Mm-hmm. The last album was a lot about the loss of your father. There were other problems this time. But the word I've seen you use again and again when talking about that dark place is, these songs are my salvation. The, the guitar gets me out of it. You know, I, I find it so inspiring that, Thanks. I mean, you know, you're all of like five or six years older than me, right? But at this stately age, elder statesman of rock, you still need this. This yeah. this gets you out of a hole. Yeah, yeah. Music is music saves all of our lives, I would like to hope and think and, and pray that it does. You know, it's, uh, you know, when I was a small child, it was the thing that, you know, sort of covered up all the chaos around me. I was I sort of just fold myself into these 45s and, and sit and memorize label copy and melodies and figure out what all of it meant. It was all very mysterious as a child. And then I get older and, and you get big albums and you read words and you see images. And then all of a sudden you hear the Ramones and you go, wow, anybody can do this. Yeah. Just that simplicity and that unity that they presented, you know, sort of showed, showed me, said, you know, get off of that other stuff you're listening to. Yeah. Get a voice. Like but, you know, that. above and beyond that, that Lou Reed song, Rock and Roll, Jenny said she was just five years old and her life was saved by rock and roll. You still you still believe that? A life yeah. can be saved by this music? Uh, yeah, if not for if not for these songs, I don't think I would have had a very good six months at the beginning of 2015 hmm. when things are really dark and thing, you know, questioning yourself a lot about your life and about what you've done and loss, sickness, you know, changes. You know, to be able to get up in the morning and go down a couple flights of stairs and tuck myself into this little room and, and make music. And, you know, on the good days, I'm there for 12 hours before I realize I've done anything. Mm. Seems like five uh, minutes, yeah. Yeah, it seems like five minutes. And at the end, you hope it's just three minutes that you can share with people. And, mm. you know, some days you go down there and 16 bars of nonsense and it's time to go take a walk. But, you know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, I think music is, it's an incredibly powerful force in all of our lives. You know, any of us who take it seriously and live and die for it. That's what it's all about. Well, it also seems like the contrast is such a big part of your, your vocabulary as mm-hmm. a, a songwriter. I just remember first time listening to something like Zen Arcade, and it was cathartic listening to the music, and then you dug deeper, and you go, wow, this guy's going through some stuff in these songs. Yeah. And it's been that way for a while. These records are, when you listen to the new record, on the surface, Patch the Sky is a very uplifting okay. uh, majestic kind of record, but you dig deeper into those lyrics, and there's some this narrator of these songs is is a troubled dude. Yeah. <laughs> so that seems to be like who wrote these anyway? That's a kind of that's kind of I don't a. Know if I uh, want to be in the same room yeah. as that guy. Stop laughing, Bob. But it, it seems like that's necessary. I'm in a dark mood, but I don't want to write dark music with it. Yeah, I think that's for many many years. That's what I unknowingly did, and then when it was presented to me, you know, much like the threes, you know, when it was presented to me that I. Oh, you write these such dark words, but these so bright melodies, you know, and then I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, a number of years go by and you sort of run from that. And 
And then when, you know, you double back and, you know, you come to the realization that that's how I appear best is when I do that. So that contrast on this record has turned up very high. And uh, I like that. I mean, I, I get hooks in my head. You know, all of us get those, I think, that love music. We get those little earworms and, you know, I know that's not a favorite word, but, you know, just those melodies that you can't shake. And I get them in my head all the time. And, you know, to be able to share those and, and have that as a nice soft landing for these harsh realities that I think as we all get older, we sort of have to deal with. Right. We've talked in the past about this whole idea of like you go back to your 45s when you're or hit a wall or, you know, just for inspiration yeah. purposes. And it's interesting that that three-minute pop single, I mean, the Rolling Stones were writing pop singles in the 60s. Whatever great band that you can think of, they all came out in the 45 RPM format with, with a song. Yeah, and so it's just like I try to impart to people, you know, when I talk about having a vinyl collection and they, people are always like, but you have to move it every time you move. I'm like, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's when you realize the meaning of it. You know, people don't throw records away so much, do they? I mean, people throw digital files away all the time. I will never part with my Husker Du 8 Miles High single. <laughs> no, the warm-up song for Zen Arcade. Yeah. It's always my favorite. When people, how did you do that? I was like, well, we were, it was our, our sound check. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give us everything you got on that vocal. Let's get those levels ready. So play us a song that good, Bob. All right, one, <laughs> one more, one more. <laughs>
That's Hold On by Bob Mould with John Worcester and Jason Narducci, live on Sound Opinions. We'll have more conversation and performance with Bob Mould when we return on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, the new collaboration between Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRogatis, and that's an early track by Husker Du called In a Free Land, written by our guest this week, Bob Mould. Now, Bob's been around for four decades, and uh, he's not been afraid to evolve over that time. You've got the hardcore punk of Husker Du. You've got that beautifully textured folk rock, almost, of his uh, first solo record. Then you've got the more melodic punk pop of Sugar. And sometimes those musical changes didn't always make sense to his fans. We're talking particularly about that period of experimentation with electronic music in the late 90s. So I asked Bob about that decision to abandon Sugar's successful sound at the height of the alternative era. You know, within three years, you know, major labels especially have found hundreds and thousands of bands that sound like that. And the sound gets watered down. I wanted to take time away from that. So I sort of stepped off the alternative rock train at the end of 98. I was living in New York City, started to open myself up more to a gay lifestyle, and the soundtrack of that lifestyle was electronic music. I spent three years, you know, going to Rebel Rebel in the West Village, buying all the electronic music I could find, trying to figure out how to make that kind of music by myself. And in uh, early 02, I put out a record called Modulate, which was a somewhat polarizing record. I guess it would be my, if I were Neil Young, it would be my trans, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, and people reacted with great confusion. hindsight I could have used a couple sets of hands to help make that music because I really didn't know what I was doing but the intention was pure it was a new experience for me and as the aughts went on you know I 
held on to that for 11 years through this DJ night called Blow Off, which, you know, went around North America, and we, you know, we're having great crowds turn out for everything, and uh, just a wonderful sense of community, you know, bringing a lot of people, sort of, I guess, the bearer community together, <laughs> you know, before it became a commodity, as all things do after three years of being popular. <laughs> you know, the one thing that electronic music taught me was, you know, little production techniques, little ways to sort of sprinkle some dust over something in the far corner of the mix that just elevates the senses, mm-hmm. you know, different ways to look at, at putting melodies together. And, you know, it really helped a lot with sequencing albums. Mm. Not that I, you know, I was good at it before, but, you know, with DJ nights, you're, you're up there telling a story for hours with other people's music for the most part. And you have to be reactive to the crowd, but you also have to be aware of key and tempo and, you know, what kind of emotional content the song has. So it's it was quite a learning experience for me, despite sort of the vexing nature of, of Modulate. That was one of the most punk rock things I think I've seen a, a major artist do, because I think people were expecting a certain thing from you. Mm-hmm. And I remember that tour for Modulate, and, oh and there was a lot of people in there. I think you played the Park West in, mm-hmm. in Chicago. Pretty much, I think it was just you on stage. It was with, me on stage with two yeah. like stereo video walls behind me with sort of clicks and accompanying minimal tracks. Yeah. And I was just up there with a guitar and voice, and uh, yeah, people seemed really confused. Oh, they, you know, or, or I would say some people were ticked off, too. I mean, it was oh, kind of like, good. oh, my God. And, you know, and it, but at the same time, you weren't making any apologies for it. It was like, I'm doing this. I felt pretty strongly about it. And it's funny because with Blow Off, as that got, you know, two years into that, we brought those same video walls back and... Funny enough, that sort of set the stage for what a lot of DJs and a lot of parties are doing now. We're obligated, I think any journalist sitting with you is, to ask a Husker Du question. Let me put the burden on you. Rather than asking okay. the same old questions, All right. what's a Husker Du question you, you don't get asked? People never ask about the high points. Yeah. People just sort of jump in at the lowest moments, you know, and just <laughs> yeah. like, what was it like after that show at the Blue Note? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, really? <laughs> it's to me, like, it's all It high was points. really sad. Everybody was very sad, and mm-hmm. just, it was time to go home. But nobody ever asked, like, what was it like when, you know, you and Grant took the reins and, and completely took charge with Flip Your Wig yeah. and made this stellar pop record yeah. that we couldn't top with the next two? Yeah. And people never ask about the good times, you know. Yeah. Going out on the road with Soul Asylum, you know, and having them light the stage on fire and us having to go out and, you know, extinguish that fire, rebuild the <laughs> stage, and then set yeah. it on fire again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody ever asked those. So that's, you know, that's like, you know, yeah. 1985, early 86, right before the, you know, the entrenchment with Warners. You right. know, that was that string of Zen Arcade, Flip Your Wig. Three, another three. It's yeah. true. Yeah. It's true. But to be fair, I mean, it was a joyful music and some of the best live music experience I've ever had in my life. But you were scary. You used to be scary. Good. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, we you know. Just, we're dead, dead serious about it. I mean, times yeah. were tough then. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. Music business is one thing, you know, but like the politics of the time. And, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a lot of bands that addressed politics in a very nihilistic anarchic, destroy everything, scorched earth, Reagan and start sucks. over. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said for that. I think what Husker Du excelled at was taking that kind of darkness and, you know, sort of taking it inward and then bringing it out with sort of this joyful noise. Yeah. I didn't feel the need to go, you know, I'm 23 and I'm gay and my president wants me to die. You know, 
I felt that. Right. It wasn't my, you know, that was not my mantra from the stage. Decades later, yeah, it's not just your family. It's your, also your government. It's, it's your business, your profession, your peers. It's, you know, all these things to rail against. But again, hopefully a joyful noise and not a, you know. Yeah. Well, I think it was. I think that, that those crowds of, of 150 or 200 at Maxwell's and at CBGB were in there and feeling a sense of community with you. I'm just saying I could have never imagined hugging you now. And now you're very huggable <laughs> and lovable. You got me on, you got me on a good one. Oh, all right. <laughs> It's a rare, I brought, I brought my A game for this. Oh. I brought my nice game. So, Bob, you're going to play another song. Which yeah, one? Yeah. Which one are you going to do for us? I'm going to do another one off the new album. Uh, this one's a fun one. It is called The End of Things.
The End of Things from Bob Mould, Jason Narducci, John Worcester on Sound Opinions. Guitar, bass, and drums, they still work pretty well. We were talking about electronic music, but <laughs> there's something. So, John, you've been involved in many musical projects, Super Chunk among them over the years. Yes. Um, what is it about this guitar, bass, drums format? Because it's easy to get jaded about it. You guys don't sound jaded. You guys have all been in the business for a long time. I think for me, it, it all comes down to songs. You know, if the songs are great, then I'll go out of my way to, to play them. You know, I, that's what I want to do. I think Jason is the, the same way, and nobody really writes them better than Bob. So it's, oh. you know, I, <laughs> I was a massive Husker Du fan as a, as a kid, and I can still remember the night I heard In a Free Land on WXPN in 1982, and Flip Your Wig might be my favorite album of all time. So it's hard to... Hard, not, hard not to. It's hard to f- those songs up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and at the same time, it's not this nostalgic thing either. What I'm hearing from this band is there's still a lot of life left in this format. I do hear a lot of stale rock bands, and maybe I'm getting jaded. But when you hear a great one, it's still like the best sound in the world. Well, I think we still have that fire, like Bob, Bob talked about. It was hard back then, and I, and I I started, you know. Many years after after Husker Du, playing you know in bands and things. Actually, not many, but five. But uh, you just still kind of retain that that fire and that and that drive. And I think we all still have that, and we all remember those days. I think that's a big that's a big thing too. Yeah. And um, it's fun. That's the that's I think what it comes down to. We wouldn't be doing it if we weren't having fun doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, for me personally, as I get older, you know, physically it gets a little harder each year. I punched a lot of holes on my voice card over the years and, you know, that's starting to look a little tattered at times and, you know, I'm upfront about it. I'm not trying to hide it or fix it. You know, it's just, it is what it is and that's what I get. So for, for doing that thing, but no, I mean, we have a lot of respect for each other as players. I think we have a lot of respect for the art form. I think growing up enveloped by music you never take it for granted. I think all of us remember the days when you had to build your own stage to play. Mm-hmm. And then if John built a stage in, in Philly and I was, you know, building a stage in Minneapolis and you finally hook up and you say, hey, we got the stage, your friends come play. That's how that all started. And you don't forget that when you're up there and you don't take it for granted when you get the bigger stages that are built for bigger purposes. I mean, then, you know, it's like, wow, I, got to this that's great can i say something about that yes please as a huge fan of bob mold one of the reasons why i would go see him play is because he only has one speed on stage and that's full on (laughs) i think our last rehearsal ever was in london in 2012 and we had a big show the next night and bob bob turns to john and i goes i'm gonna take it easy guys we've got a big (laughs) show and you know Two songs later, I'm looking over and the veins are popping out and he's screaming. It's just what Bob does and it's why we all go to see yeah. him and why we all appreciate what he does. And as a, a band member for John and I, when you look over and your leader is losing yourself, it doesn't matter what happened that day. You just fall in and lose yourself in it too. And that, I think, audiences appreciate us doing that. Well, you guys are going to give us one more song, right? What are you going to play, Bob? We're going to play one of the tricky ones, one of the fun mm. ones. My one of, It's... it's uh, Song called Daddy's Favorite, and it's like so. John, John, and I. I don't. JC, you were a Kiss fan, right? Yeah. So, so it's yeah, it's that kind of thing. You know, I somehow found my mid seventies pre Ramones <laughs> thing a little bit in this record. There's a lot of a lot of side two of the album's got a lot of a lot of big riffs, which I haven't uh, haven't rolled out in 
40 years. So <laughs> were, you, were you really a Kiss fan, Bob? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Kiss Army. I did Kiss cover, See, Kiss, Kiss never, lip sync, the whole I thing. I never got that. When Replacements covered the you know, Kiss, I was like, what is wrong with that? You know, <laughs> th- this isn't right. You know, at the time, I mean, there was, you know, Aerosmith, Kiss, Foghat, you know, Nugent. I'm Heart. down with I mean, all of that. Yeah, Nugent, Weekend Warriors, Whoa. but never Kiss. Anything you had to put makeup on to play, I didn't understand. True, true. No, the that. Dolls? Come on. You know? That was a different kind of makeup. <laughs> <laughs> that was way different. That was scary makeup. That was scary, yeah. <laughs> less con pieces. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so this, <laughs> yeah, we'll wrap it up with, with what feels more like a less of an 80s and more of a 70s riff. So I'll see if I can still play this one.
man, daddy's favorite. Griffin. Bob Mould at 100% with Jason Narducci, John Worcester in the back. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for having us back. It's great. After a short break, we'll review an album from a brand new power trio, Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers. Then Jim's going to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Atomic Number from that new power trio named Case, Lang, and Veers. That's the self-titled album from Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers. Three very prominent singer-songwriters who have had between them uh, several decades of success. Going back the furthest, I think, to Katie Lang, uh, begins her career in the 80s out of Canada, she had a spotlight moment at the Winter Olympics back in 88. A year later, uh, got an offer from Roy Orbison to duet with him on the song Crying, which really put her on the international map, and went on to have a solo career that's done everything from uh, uh, neo-country songs to torch ballads. Then you've got Laura Veers, nine albums since 1999, most produced by her husband, Tucker Martine, who's also working on this new project. Very folk and country-leaning material uh, from Laura Veers over those years. And then there's Nico Case. Nico started out uh, as a punk rock drummer <laughs> in the 90s and has been all over the country, really. Became part of that uh, bloodshot record scene in Chicago, alternative country, really awful terminology. Even bloodshot didn't like that term. They called it insurgent country. Nico Case kind of filtering that voice over hardcore country and punk rhythms. But has since evolved. It's really hard to categorize exactly what kind of music Nico Case does. She produces, she writes, she's a great musician, uh, and most of all, an incredibly versatile vocalist. These three women didn't really know each other personally before starting this project, but they liked each other's music. It was initiated by an email from Katie Lang to Laura Veers and Nico Case saying, hey, we got to work together. Yeah. And usually those kind of things come to nothing. But over two years, they dedicated themselves. And now we have the record Case, Lang, and Veers. We're going to review it in a minute. But here's a track from it first called Delirium on Sound Opinions.
That is Delirium by the trio of Nico Case, Katie Lang, and Laura Veers from the Case Lang Veers album. You know, Greg, uh, when I played this record the first time, it shot me back to 1990. Another incredible record called Dreams Come True on the Antones label by three great blues roots rock divas, Luann Barton, Marsha Ball, and Angela Strelli, right? I, I had known Marsha Ball. I wasn't fans of the other two, and it deepened my appreciation for all three women. There was an incredible collaboration there, a lack of ego, each of those singers wanting to make the other sound better, and here you have that again with this unlikely pairing of Nico, Katie, and, and Laura. The direction they went in is sort of, uh, you know, bubbly, lush, 60s pop. Think Burt Bacharach. Um, with the harmonies merging in such a way that you often can't tell whose voice is whose. And you have three really distinctive singers, right? It's it's just a joyful album, if a little low-key. It's a grower. It's going to take you two or three listens to really fall in love with it. And then when you do, uh, you can't stop listening to it. And and it, it's given me a new appreciation. I was not the biggest Laura Veers fan. Uh, now I, I have a much Stronger appreciation for her. I've always loved Nico. I love Katie. I love hearing them together. It's a buy it album for me on our buy it, try it, or trash it scale. Well, Jim, you mentioned uh, Laura Veers, and uh, from what I can tell in in talking to the other singers in this project, uh, Laura Veers was really the driving force from a songwriting approach on this mm. particular record. And her husband, Tucker Martin, the producer on the record, I think also does an excellent job of giving this record a unifying feel. You know, the the fact that the three of them really didn't know each other personally before they made this project made me really dubious when I heard about it. You know, most of these so-called super group projects, they end up being uh, extremely uh, mediocre well, or always, worse. They always sound better on paper. Yeah. And then in the studio or on stage. Wow, that's a great idea. Then you hear it and you go, these p- three people barely know each other. And you can tell by the way this sounds. This, as you said, has a very integrated feel to it. They are having a ball singing together. Even though there are moments where, for example, Katie Lang has just got such a striking voice, uh, she's so dominant on some of these songs, and yet you listen to that track two or three, four times, and you recognize what's going on in those backing harmonies, and there's a lot going on there as well. So it's not just a showcase for a singer and the other two dropping into the background. There's some real... Uh, group harmonizing going on here. There's call and response. There's a real integration of the three voices into something that individually none of them would have been able to create without the contributions of the other two. So from that standpoint, this is a super group, quote unquote, project that really works. And I'm really looking forward to a follow-up record to this because now that they've got sort of a sense of where they want to go, as you said, sort of a Laurel Canyon, early 70s, mid-60s girl group kind of sound. Uh, they could go anywhere from here. The Case Langbeer's record is a bite all the way for me as well. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. 
As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island. It's midsummer, Jim. Uh, you're swimming out there in your speedos. I, I really like that look on you. Oh. Uh, you're gonna drop a quarter in the desert island jukebox. What do you got for us, Greg? This has been a horrible year in rock. We've lost so many great talents, and I am going to pay homage to one this week. You and I have been fighting about this artist as being a genius for as long as I've known you. Okay, but I love Prince B of PM Dawn. He's dead now as complications from diabetes finally claimed him at the age of 46. The story goes back to Atrell Cortez Jr. being a fat, music-loving misfit in Jersey City, New Jersey. I was all of those things as well. So I've always related to this artist. I've always cheered his success. He was at a gifted and talented school but got kicked out for being kind of unruly. He winds up as a guard at a mental hospital in Jersey City. It's about, you know, as awful an upbringing as you can imagine. But he had two things. His stepdad played conga at times with Cool and the Gang, and he had this unique faith that merged Roman Catholicism with the teachings of the uh, Virginia Beach preacher and and philosopher Edgar Casey. I've never understood. It's something to do with karma, reincarnation, and the lost continent of Atlantis, all right? Nobody really understood Prince B's spiritual code except for Prince B. He takes the money he's making as a security guard at the mental hospital. He begins making four-track demos, and somehow they wind up in London where they set the world on fire. His debut album, 1991, largely crafted by himself, comes out of the heart, of the soul, and of the cross, the utopian experience, and is a massive hit in the UK, eventually spilling over to success in the year of alternative rock and nirvana here in the US as well. People will remember those big MTV hits, Set Adrift on Memory, Bliss, and Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. You know, Greg, this idea of Afrofuturism, a lot of scholars, a lot of great critics have written about it. The tradition in the African-American community, diverse genres, Sun Ra, Jimi Hendrix, George Clinton of Parliament, Funkadelic, and to some extent Prince, imagining a better universe, psychedelic, transcend the everyday, transcend the mundane, and go to a better universe. I see him as the link between early psychedelic hip-hop classics like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising and the Beastie Boys' Immortal Paul's Boutique, and later music like a lot of what Common did, Electric Circus or Stankonia, Outcast, and certainly Janelle Monet and Chance the Rapper, right? This wonderful tradition of bringing the psychedelic into hip-hop. Prince B is not only sampling Spandau Ballet, getting derided as soft and granola, beyond granola and backpack by, by a gang gangster rappers, right? He's also incorporating samples from Chick Corea, you Masakela, a Sly Stone, The Beatles, Baby You're a Rich Man. I think there were four masterful albums between 91 and 98, at which point shortly thereafter Prince B suffered a stroke, never really recovered, continued to put some music out on the web. Then at age 46, diabetes and renal disease finally catch up with him. I think it's a great loss. I think this guy was a visionary. He's an artist that meant an awful lot to me. I'm going to go deep to pay tribute to him. The third album came out in 95. It was called Jesus Wept. And this song, Downtown Venus, shows him, and to some extent his brother, who was the DJ in the group, DJ Minute Mix, at the height of their powers. He's singing more than rapping. He's imagining life on Venus. He's weird. It's beautiful. Uh, it's incredibly melodic. I think, you know, this is this is a song that's as good as anything Prince ever gave us. I really believe that. PM Dawn, Downtown Venus on Sound Opinions. 
I'm Venus And I'm trying to be by myself Downtown Venus by P.M. Dawn, my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week in tribute to Prince B, dead at 46. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, next week we've got a list, and what a list it is. It's the best of 2016 so far. Greg, we've got some thanks. Mary Gaffney, Che Arthur, and Andrew Gill helped us with our session with Bob Mould. Sound Opinions is produced by our new executive producer. Welcome to him, Brendan Banizek, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne. We have a new intern. Daphne McGlean, and our old intern is leaving. Libby, boy, she was great. It's not going to be the same without Libby Gormley. Thank you, Libby. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Jeremy calling from St. Petersburg, Florida. As a huge fan of all things post-punk and, you know, amphetamine-driven rock and roll, I thought that the anxiety episode was wonderful. A suggestion that I had kind of goes in the opposite direction, though, and that would be Nina Simone's Sinnerman. Oh, Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? The uh, general idea of the song, someone that's running from the Lord, running from the devil, pretty much cranks the anxiety up very high. Uh, love your show. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Hi, this is for the anxious songs list. Uh, I want to be sedated by the Ramones.
help me to not sedate myself one winter when I had to take care of my father after my mother had passed away. My father was making every bad decision in the book. And every time I sang this song, I felt a little better and knew that I could get through it. And I did. And he's doing better. Thank you. Hey, guys. This is Chris from Winston-Salem. Uh, I wish you had more punk in the list. And, you know, if I was going to make a recommendation, uh, I think there's there's no way that I would miss uh, suggesting institutionalized by suicidal tendencies. Um, it may be a little on the nose, but that final verse, when Mike is being spoken to by his parents and they're telling him it's for his own best good, and he just starts to rail against this idea of, you know, who gets to determine what's best for me, and the tempo just kicks into overdrive, and you get the sense of, like, him losing control and that you know, validating uh, in his parents' eyes their concerns, but also being an inevitable consequence of having your uh, your freedom taken away as a teenager. That's It's such it's just an anxious and frustrated uh, depiction of that kind of experience. What are you trying to say? I'm crazy. When I went to your school, I went to your churches, I went to your institutional learning facilities. So how do you say I'm crazy? Say you're going to pick my face, leave me suffering in my face. By the time they pick my head, man, I'll leave you, I'll be dead. I'm not crazy. Hi, I am calling about your anxiety theme song show, and I will never forgive you if you do not play I Have the Touch by Peter Gabriel, because if you know anything about anxiety, you know that that song is exactly how anxiety feels. My name's Blythe, calling from Chicago. Please play that song. Bye. More messages. To give us your opinions on sound opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more sound opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.